Well, amen. It is great to have you with us. And for those of you who were with us yesterday, what an incredible party we had together. So if you weren't here, we had over 900 to 1,000 people on our property golfing out into the lake. You'll see the little flags out there, listening to music by our student band, uh, inflatables and food trucks. It was just an amazing time to have our, our community together and a chance to invite friends. I invited many friends who don't necessarily go to our church. First exposure to our church was getting just a chance to have a lot of fun together. So thank you for those who give financially so we can provide opportunities to reach our community. And thank you for those who uh, served because we needed all the servers we could get yesterday. It was quite a party and a lot of fun together. Well, today we are continuing in the book of Hebrews. And we are going to try and solve and tackle uh, one of the great mysteries of the Bible. Who is Melchizedek? You're like, Gesundheit? What'd you say? Melchizedek? Who? We left off last week where our hope, our access behind the veil is tied directly to Jesus being our high priest. Let me remind you where we were last week. If we jump back, we started off with, let me reload here, I got the wrong slide up. Actually, uh, I'm going to have you guys switch over and put my first slide up on the screen. So what happened is that we learned in Hebrews chapter 6 that the hope we have that is anchored in Jesus is steadfast because it's tied to our access behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, for he became the high priest. Then he throws on according to the order of Melchizedek. So look, he links forgiveness, access, and hope to our understanding of Jesus as high priest. To which you're like, sounds pretty good to me. Here's the problem. Anyone reading this letter would know that Jesus is undoubtedly unqualified by the Bible's criteria to be a priest, let alone a high priest. Jesus doesn't meet the basic requirements to be a priest. He's from the wrong tribe. You see, God set up that there were 12 tribes of Jacob, Jacob's sons, Simeon and Benjamin and Judah. Judah... If you came through the line of Judah, you could be Messiah. Jesus was from Judah. But the only people who could be priests had to come from Levi. You couldn't be a priest from any other tribe. And Jesus is from the wrong tribe. Therefore, he cannot possibly be a priest. So all the access, all the forgiveness, all the boldness, all that stuff linked to his priesthood is in jeopardy today. What are they going to do? How are they going to solve this? Either the Bible is wrong about its criteria or Jesus really is not a priest. What do you do? If you remember from the book of uh, Matthew, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus, son of David, the son of Abraham, who begot Jacob, who begot Judah, and Judah begot Jesus. And yet we hear in Exodus and Numbers very clearly the priesthood, you have to be related to Aaron and his sons. 
And among the Israelites, it's only the Levites who partner with Aaron and his sons to do the work of the priesthood. How are we going to solve this insurmountable problem? Is Jesus not qualified to be a priest and therefore we lose all these benefits? And yet our writer is going to say that you can have confidence that he's not only Messiah, but the priest that gives you access to the very presence of God because he's not from the priesthood of Levi. He's from a much better one. The priesthood of Melchizedek. How is he going to do that without making the requirements of the Old Testament fall apart. He's going to give us four comparisons. And he presumes so much knowledge that I'm going to take two weeks to cover these 15 verses because it's mystery upon mystery upon mystery. So first, the timeline. And his main point's going to be that Jesus is from a priesthood that predates all the other priesthoods. Quick little timeline. Abraham lives about 1900 B.C., So the story from Genesis is telling what happened about 1900. Moses, who writes Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, is in 1500 B.C. King David will show up in 1000 B.C. And Jesus will show up at 0 to 33 A.D. And the book of Hebrews is written in 50 to 100. Okay, so keep in mind, those are the main sections of history we're looking at today. So let's start with Abraham. In Genesis, we learn that there is a city called Salem... And here in Salem is a man named Melchizedek. And he is at a worship center for God El Elyon, God Almighty. And Abraham has just finished a big battle against the people who kidnapped his nephews from the, from the city of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's made his way back celebrating the victory, all this bounty, all this blessing. He comes to Salem and he meets Melchizedek, the king of the city and the priesthood of the worship center who gives him an incredible blessing. And that's all we hear about Melchizedek. That's it. For about 900 years. Tick, 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 tick. We now get to 1000 BC, King David. He has now moved the capital city of Jerusalem. It's now become the capital of Israel. Salem is now called Jerusalem. He's writing one day about the Messiah, and he says, My Lord said to my Lord, sit at the right hand of God. I will give everything to you. And then he kind of throws in this line, Oh, and by the way, Messiah, of course we know you're from the priesthood of Melchizedek. We haven't heard about the guy for 900 years. And now it's mission critical to understanding the Messiah. Huh. Then we don't hear about it for another thousand years. With one small exception, when we discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls in 1940-ish, it told of a time about 150 B.C. that a group of Essenes were copying their notes about the Bible, but they also copied their commentary of them trying to figure out who Melchizedek was. And so there's a particular scroll called the 11Q Scroll, Melchizedek, where they determined, hmm, I think Melchizedek is a spiritual being Maybe the head of all of God's angels. That's who he is. Hmm. Then the next time the Bible mentions Melchizedek is in the book of Hebrews, where he spends chapters after chapters saying, yep, Jesus is our forever priest. Yes, he's from Judah, 
and not from Levi, but that's okay because he's tied to the forever priesthood of Melchizedek. Hmm. Here's what he's trying to say. Let's go back to the passages. So here's all the Bible we have on Melchizedek in the Old Testament. Melchizedek, the king of Salem, he brought out bread and wine. How interesting is that? He offers communion to Abraham. He was the priest of the Most High God, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram of God, God Most High, the the, the possessor of all heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High. And Abraham is so struck that God would bless him and think of him and provide for him, he tithes 10% of what he has. First time tithe is mentioned in the Bible. 900 years go by, and we get to David. The Lord said to my Lord, why are there two lords? I thought we believed in one God. We do. It's like God said to another God, who are really the same, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies, for you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. There it is again. Here's what he's saying. Hey, guys. You're worried about what Moses said, about Levites and priests and all his qualifications. And, and you're worried that Jesus doesn't tie himself back to Moses and doesn't tie him back to one of Abraham's descendants, Jacob. Jesus got something better than that. Jesus is tied back to a priesthood that predates all of them, a superior priesthood, a permanent priesthood that traces all the way back to the time of Abraham before we even had the law, before we even had those qualifications. That was a temporary priesthood. He comes from the permanent predated priesthood so he simultaneously affirms the bible's predictions and shows how jesus was from something better that the bible also affirmed so that's our first comparison second comparison the city of salem and here his point is going to be that jesus is the predicted provision of god that god made it so clear so you could know for sure where to find forgiveness and how to find the one sent from god How does he do that? Well, he's talking here in uh, both Hebrews and Genesis. And he says, this Melchizedek was the king of Salem, the priest. He's a priest king. But specifically, he's mentioned to be the king of Salem. So cities in those days were built up on a hill. They were called tells. So you would go up on the tell and build a city so you could fortify it. So this city was known as Salem. Abraham has just returned from battle. He makes his way up to the top of Salem. That's when Melchizedek provides a blessing, provides the promise of God, and for the first time, a king priest bestows upon Abraham and his descendants the kingly blessing and the priesthood, the forgiveness that comes from God here on this hill in this city. Abraham doesn't have any kids. This is a reminder. God's going to keep his promises. He's going to have kids. And he's going to have opportunity. A few years later, Abraham has a son. His son's name is Isaac. And of all things, God calls him to take his son to the same mountain, Moriah, of the city of Salem. And he climbs back up that same hill. This time with his only begotten son, whom he loves. And he climbs to the top of this hill to sacrifice his son. And just as he's about to sacrifice his only begotten son, 
Yahweh says, stop! I will provide a substitute. And God on this hill that provided a blessing now provided a promise and provided a sacrifice. And you know, Abraham names this hill. What would you call it? If you almost had to sacrifice your son on the hill. I'd call it like sacrifice hill. Blood, sweat, and tears hill. He calls it God provides mountain. David becomes king years later. It's 1000 BC. Of all the capital cities, he decides to capture now called Jerusalem, not Salem, and he makes it the capital city of Israel. God provides a kingdom. God provides leadership here. God provides a place that people could find refuge. He wants to build a temple here, but God says, wait for your son to do it. And of all the places Solomon could build this permanent temple, because you know, it's been moving around as a tabernacle, he decides to build it at the same place Melchizedek appeared, the same place that Isaac was sacrificed, and the temple gets built up on this same spot. Jump forward another 800 years. Jesus shows up at 33 AD. In his final hours, he climbs up to Jerusalem. And he goes up the mountain till Golgotha. And he dies on this hill, becoming an intermediate between us and God, proving he's the Messiah, and being the ultimate provision of what we needed from God. God wanted you to know so confidently that Jesus is who he says he is, that he had everything occur in the exact same place in the world so that you would know that Jesus was the predicted provision of God here in Salem. So that's our second comparison. Our third one is the nicknames. There's all kinds of nicknames embedded here that you almost have to understand what happened in the past to get the nicknames. He's going to show us that never in time has there been a king who is also a priest, except for Melchizedek. He's the only one. And Jesus is both a priest and a king. But to understand that, we need to jump back in time to look at what happened during the time of Abraham. So Joshua mentions this, but here's the account. Hey guys, your fathers, including Abraham's dad, Terah, served other gods. The question is, who are the gods they served back then? And I took your father Abraham, and I took him from the other side of the river. I led him, I multiplied his descendants, and I gave him Isaac. I just, God just generously gave and gave and gave. So who are those gods? Well, if you lived in Mesopotamia during Abraham's day, or his dad's day, and you said, who are the gods? They would say, well, here are the gods. It's Baal. You probably heard of Baal. They make him into a big cow later, but there's Baal. His sister, Anit. Their mom, Asherah, the god of sensuality. All through the Old Testament, we have Asherah poles that just keep going up because they're worshiping the descendants of Asherah, the goddess of sensuality. But her husband's name, Baal's dad, is El. So when Abraham decides to trust in God, the one God, he's like, well, the one God, he's like, well, the gods we know about are like, El is the patriarch of the family of gods we know. I'm not serving him. I'm like El Elyon, like the one that's above El. 
the one that possesses heaven and earth. That's who I've got my trust in. So with that in mind, here's what it says in Genesis. Melchizedek was a king of Salem. He brought out bread and wine. He was also the priest of El Elyon, God Most High. God doesn't reveal his name as Yahweh until Moses, 400 years later. And he blessed him and said, blessed be Abraham of God Most High. This is the God, the real God, the true God who possesses all of heaven and all of earth. So now we get to Hebrews. And we have this rubric of criteria for the Messiah that no one could possibly meet this, could they? They got to be a king, like Melchizedek was a king. They need to be a priest, someone who can be an intermediate, coming from the tribe of Levi, we think. But if they're Messiah, they got to come from Judah. They need to be the most high God, not just any God, the one true God, the God who's above all the other spiritual forces and claims of other foreign gods. And he goes on to say, and this Melchizedek met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of kings and blessed him. He's got to be the source of blessing. To whom Abraham gave a tenth of everything he had as worship. And by the way, Melchizedek's name translates or means the king of righteousness. So he also needs to be the source of righteousness. And like Jerusalem, meaning peace, he also needs to be king of peace. And Jesus shows up and uniquely meets all this criteria. He's the source of God's righteousness. He's the priest of God. He's the God Almighty. He is the source of the peace between you and God. He meets the criteria of the forever priest and he's the criteria of the Messiah. It's unbelievable. All these nicknames show how Jesus uniquely hit the rubric that were the predictions of the Old Testament. But there's a fourth comparison. And a fourth comparison gets a little weirder. <laughs> How can it get weirder? He goes on to say this is a permanent priesthood. He says this, this priesthood that Melchizedek had was so much more superior because, well, here's how he says it. For Melchizedek, the king of Salem, didn't have a father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither a beginning of days nor the end of life. But he was made like the Son of God. And he remains a priest continually. What does that mean? The guy didn't have a mom or dad? He doesn't have a genealogy? Now, on the one hand, it could just mean, hey, guys, you're obsessed with genealogies. Who's from Levi? Who's from Judah? And I understand why. But the real priesthood that the Bible mentions just doesn't mention his genealogy. So don't worry about it. You're getting too obsessed with genealogies when the priesthood we know about from Genesis and from, from Psalms says that the ultimate priesthood didn't have a genealogy. That could be. Except that he then says he didn't have a beginning. Well, the only person who doesn't have a beginning is God. Nor does he have an end of life. That's got to be somebody who's more than a mortal. And he's a priest continually or forever. So there's three views, and this is why people have been debating this for 2,000 years. Number one, Melchizedek is Jesus. It's Jesus in the Old Testament, appears, leads people, blesses Abraham himself, and says, God's got a plan for you, and Messiah's coming for you. I'm coming from you as a mortal. But he's a spiritual being appearing to Abraham. Explains a lot of the challenges in the passage. 
The second view, second view is that Melchizedek is a, the head of all spiritual beings. He's Michael the archangel, or like the Essenes said, he's the head of all the spiritual forces. However, angels were created. They're created beings. So they do have a beginning, even if they go on for eternity. The third view is that there's a mystery here we don't know. Melchizedek is some type of prototype. In fact, he uses the word type in another passage in Hebrews to say he's just an example of all the pieces that are going to need to come together fully in the Messiah is a prototype of somebody who is king and prophet and priest, an actual source of righteousness and eternal peace. I don't know. I kind of bounce back and forth between when you ask me between one and three. Either way, it's to point us to the ultimate Jesus. And one of the reasons I don't think he's Jesus is because he says things like he's made like. He could have just said he is the son of God. He was the son of God. He says he's made like. But whatever it is, it points to his, his priesthood, his forever priesthood, his endless life priesthood, as it says in the book of, of Hebrews. All right, so all that to say, what's his point? Here's his point. Here's what he's been saying. Jesus is the permanent, perfect, predicted priest king that predated everything in the past. That's a lot of peas, by the way. We don't do that very often. And because of that, your hope is anchored. Your forgiveness is anchored. Your access behind the veil is anchored to the worthship of Jesus. And when you recognize how much he's worth, the natural response is worship. That we would do to God's promises and his ultimate Melchizedek what Abraham did when he met Melchizedek in Genesis. We worship by giving. Here's his application. It's two of them actually. One, guys, I want you to give generously to God who gave generously to you with permanent promises. When you understand the promises of access, the promises of hope, the promises God had, you are so overwhelmed by that, you just overflow with worship that God gave you permanent promises. And he's so generous to you. The first time the word tithe is used is in Genesis because he's so overwhelmed with worship, he gives in worship and response. Here's how the writer of Hebrews says it. Indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who received the priesthood, they received something from God, they had a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them, Melchizedek, he received tithes from Abraham. And he blessed Abraham and he gave him the promises. Now here's what he's saying in a rather uh, uh, wordy way. Abraham shows up to Melchizedek, the ultimate priest king. And he is so honored that God has given him a blessing, that God has been so generous to him, that God has provided for him, that he's so thankful to God that he pours out tithes to the priest of the local worship assembly as a way of saying, thank you, God, for giving me these promises so you give to the priest king, Melchizedek. Moses then shows up and says, in the same way, we, the people who are not priests, 
are so overwhelmed by God's provision of Passover, overwhelmed by his promises of grace, his promises of being with us, that we give a tithe to our local priests at the local assembly, the priesthood, as a way of worshiping, saying thanks to God for what he's done for us. So that's what he just said there. And this is why giving is worship. You're so thankful to what God has done with these permanent promises that you pour out generously your worship through financial giving to the worship center God's called you to. A couple weeks ago, we've been going through this real tough stuff, you know, in, in Hebrews, and we're having a great time trying to untangle these mysteries. A guy came up after the service, he said, Chad, can I talk to you? And I said, sure. He said, I can't tell you what God is doing through this series of just freeing me up to find grace and Jesus and not live by the law. I said, that is so awesome. He said, this is a very special place, Horizon is. I said, well, thank you. I feel the same way. He said, between my small group and what I'm learning on Sundays, I'm just, I'm changing. I'm becoming a better husband. I'm becoming a better father. He said, but there's one thing I struggle with. I said, only one? Wow. He said, well, okay, one big one I struggle with. So what's that? He said, I really struggle with giving financially. I said, oh, yeah, that's all right. A lot of people struggle with that. Just, you know, let God continue to grow you. He said, well, six months ago you said something. I thought, wow, he remembered something I said six months ago. I don't remember what I said six months ago. What did I say? He said, six months ago you said, when it comes to giving, start small and give big. I said, oh, I kind of remember saying that. He said, so I did. I went from just kind of reaching in whatever's in my wallet and throwing it in. I started coming intentionally. It's a small gift for me. But it was an intentional, habitual gift. Hey, because I gotta tell you, it's been several months now. It went from the biggest struggle in my life to when I give each week, I keep giving progressively more. I am experiencing so much joy. I'm like, that is so awesome. I said, it's so hard if somebody hasn't experienced the joy of giving to kind of teach them that. Because it's like you tell them what it is, like it's like talking to a third grade boy who think all girls have cooties that one day they're going to want kissing a girl. Oh, I'm never going to like kissing a girl. No, you're going to like it. It's actually kind of fun. No, I'm not going to like that. No, it's like the joy of giving. You don't get it until you do it. So we just had a great conversation. And that's this idea here that when you are worshiping God for what he's done, he's promised to you, you just pour out like Abraham did with a tithe. You give generously to the worship center that's making that news known. He says the second reason we give generously is because of the permanent perfection we get. This is the gospel so different from religion. Religion is work yourself, try and do your best. Maybe you'll have a good day, maybe you'll have a bad day. Keep trying to have more good days than bad days and maybe it'll bounce out. You can be perfect before God in Christ. Not based on what you do, but based on the generous giving of his son. Now he argues this kind of backwards. He's kind of saying, guys, you're trusting in the Levitical system and all the old priests and all the old things. They didn't bring perfection. So he's contrasting their not bringing perfection system from the perfect permanent perfection that's in Jesus. Here's how he says it. Therefore, guys, if perfection had come through Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, what further would they need for another priest? If those Levites worked, why would we need a forever priest? Melchizedek. Why would we need that? 
and not be called according to the order of Aaron. The, the Bible says somebody that wasn't from Aaron and wasn't from the Levites and not under the law but came from Melchizedek, why would we need another one if that stuff worked and made you perfect? It didn't. And by the way, from the order of Melchizedek, no one has ever served at the altar in temple. But Jesus stands before the ultimate altar in heaven. And his blood was poured out in the ultimate mercy seat. He became the ultimate propitiation. Which means when you put your trust in Christ, everything you've ever done is covered with his blood. Past, present, future. And God looks at you and he sees you as perfect. Because he sees you through Christ's perfection. How valuable is that? Do you see how that would instill so much worship? When you are, I mean, imagine you could see yourself the way Jesus sees you if what I'm saying is true. Imagine you perfected. It's unfathomable. You perfected because of the generosity of God. And he says in the response to that, when Abraham discovered the blessing, it's the same thing when we discover the blessing of being perfect before God. You can't help but worship through giving. You generously give back to the one who permanently made you perfect. And I can tell you, as your pastor, the outpouring of encouragement and giving that happens around here that allows us to create opportunities for our neighbors, a thousand neighbors to come to this place, to one day maybe be in this space to hear about Jesus. And how much fun is it to do it together? Like to have a community of people saying, hey, let, we want people to know the gospel. There's a lot of religions out there, but nothing like that. You can be perfect now before God in, in God's sight. Man, how cool is it to pull our financial resources together to create tools to have people find out about that, to teach about that. And many of us are generous to a lot of things, right? And that's awesome. We give to temporal things and things in the arts and things in the community and great facilities and things that facilitate awesome stuff. But worship is saying, I'm, I'm investing in a place that has eternal value because it brings the eternity of Jesus to bear. I worship who God is and I want other people to worship him. Right? People's eternal destinies are changed when they get to know who Jesus is. Their eternities change. The reason we have both an exploring service and an equipping service is because it's worship. When a person who doesn't know Jesus begins to see that maybe the gospel has some benefits initially, they begin to see its worth. And then they go from seeing the benefits of the gospel to seeing who Jesus really is as the one who gives those benefits. And they begin to worship Jesus to see his value as they explore their faith. And 20-year Bible veterans, we want to dig deep. We want to say, let's take two weeks and figure out who Melchizedek was. Let's go verse by verse through the Bible. Let's not avoid the difficult stuff. Why did God command those things to be killed in that passage? That's hard. Melchizedek is hard. Ephesians 6, 4 to 6, we did two weeks ago. It's hard. But God's eternal word that needs to be proclaimed. And we want to equip you and me to love this book and discover the hidden promises in some of these passages. There is something so powerful about both exploring and equipping. But it's expensive. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of money. But mostly it takes a lot of worship. People have been so overwhelmed what God has done with them, for them, in them, 
They say, how can I not pour out my resources to my local worship assembly so that more people can worship the way I've worshiped? It's about equipping people. The reason we have Bible studies is because we want to equip people to figure out how do you live out this gospel thing. The amount of volunteers we have that run our small groups and our ministries It's just amazing to see people equipped to the work of ministry and say, I want other people to know how to worship God. Remember two years ago, we were raising money to put cameras in place? Remember that? Who knew COVID was going to hit and it would be the way in which we were a church for the next nine months and everything was in place because you chose to worship through giving so we could have things that facilitated services. More than that, God has done an amazing thing through the giving that you did two years ago. In fact, they sent me a map. Here is the number of people who are now listening and watching right now as we speak every weekend all over the country. All those dots. People who are learning how to explore. People who are learning how to be equipped in verse-by-verse Bible study. The worship of this place. Well, not the worship of this place, but the worship that's coming out of this place toward Jesus is now being impacted by people all around the world. In fact, many of you are probably watching right now online. And you're saying, yep, that's me. I'm that dot. I'm up in Wisconsin. Yep, I'm over in Nashville. I had a guy called me this week. He said, Chad, we came to Horizon about a year ago. God really did an amazing thing in my life. I'm going through an incredibly difficult time. I live in Nashville now. My son and I, every week we watch services online. I said, that's great. How old's your son? 25. He said, we just find that what God is doing through the services in our life is powerful. Would you be willing to baptize me? Well, I'm not coming to Nashville anytime soon. He's like, no, I'll drive up. So they're driving up the next couple weeks. We're going to baptize them out in this place. People worshiping all over the country. Because of the giving we did here to worship, we created tools, facilities, and tents so people could feel comfortable outside during COVID. And even now, it's all worship. It's worth-ship. We want more and more people as they come to Christ to see the worth of him. And we try to do it incredibly effectively, right? We want to be efficient and productive in, in how we do the work. And so if you look at our church, you know, about 14% of our you know, workforce, about 250 volunteers are needed every weekend on cameras with children as baristas. We even have a volunteer here that makes cakes for people's birthdays. You know who you are, and we appreciate you. We're about equipping people in small groups, equipping people in ministry, teaching people how to give financially here, near, and far as they work with inter-parish ministries and go down to City Gospel and go on a trip with our partners of back-to-back or Belize uh, mission partners and medical partners, and they get down there and God inspires them to be even more generous to other areas that God's prompting them to be. We feel like the more we can steward and have the staff equip the saints to do the work of ministry, the more God is worshipped. So again, it is so much fun to be part of a community that's helping facilitate worship. I don't know how many of you watched the Olympics, but uh, one of my favorite stories in the Olympics this year was from one of our swimmers. I don't know how many gold medals he has now, uh, uh, Dressel. One of his first gold medals, he's running this individual event. He's swimming it. He gets to the end, and sure enough, bam, he gets the gold medal. He's standing up there, they're playing the American anthem, and he puts the gold medal over, just a sign of years of of work and discipline and triumph and victory. But then the audience was shocked that he took the medal off. 
he walked down the stairs, he walked over to the bleachers where his teammate Curry was sitting in the bleachers and he says, this is for you. And Curry put a medal over his neck that somebody else had earned. And I understand why. In order for Dressel to compete in his individual event, he also was on a relay team that was trying to qualify at the same time, and he couldn't be there. So Curry had taken his place in the qualifying event. And because of what Curry had done, this team now qualified for the relay event, which Dressel then swam in Curry's place and won another gold there. And in this, we see such a powerful picture of the gospel in two ways. While we're sitting in the stand, not living up to our own standards, Jesus, who won the race on our behalf, takes off the gold and says, come here, you are perfect in me. And like Curry, when we couldn't qualify, because we were too busy or we were too distracted, Jesus took our place in the race. So we qualified for the finals, not based on what we do, but based on he did. Based on what he did. You know why we worship? You know why we give of our gold? Because we receive the ultimate gold medal from Jesus. The author and perfecter of our faith who ran the race before us and qualified on our behalf. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this mysterious and strange and wonderful mystery that is Melchizedek. Thank you so much for your permanent promises and your permanent perfection. Fill our hearts up with so much worship that we can't help but grow in our worship through music, grow in our worship through, through teaching, grow in our worship through prayer. But God, may we be a congregation that grows in our worship through tithing and giving financially as well. That we would be as generous to others as you have been to us. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. And believe it or not, we only covered half the mysteries of this chapter, so we're going to finish the rest of them next week. We'll look forward to seeing you for Hebrews chapter 7, 1 to 15 again. Thanks for being here.